0: Process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com.
1: Hello everybody, this is Sean Martin, and you're very welcome to a new episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here on ITSP Magazine where I get to look at uh, all kinds of things related to security programs, uh, not just to protect the business and, and what it delivers, but also protect and hopefully help generate growth as well in a secure way. So. Um, there's, of course, no lack of topics under the realm of cybersecurity or infosec, if you want to call it that. And uh, yeah, I think continuous security testing, having a view of where you stand at any point in time is something that the industry's constantly struggling with um, across the realm of networks, infrastructure, apps, data. IOT, OT, you name it, right? The the world is all there, and of course, I know just about this much <laughs> about about uh, many things, and uh, that's why I get to have amazing guests on, like David Hunt, to help uh, help broaden the, the conversation and dig deeper. David, thanks for joining me.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
1: And uh, let's b- before we get into, I mean. We, the catalyst behind this conversation is a book you've written on continuous security testing. And, uh, we're going to get into a bit of that, how you, how you decided to write a book there, your first one, evidently. And, uh, I presume it's built or a result of a lot of things you've experienced over your career. So first let's start about, start off with, uh, your, your current role and, and what you're up to.
2: Yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, definitely the book is based on a lot of those experiences. So yeah, I'm the CTO and a co-founder of a company called Prelude Security. And so what we do is security testing. And so we focus on defenses and how defenses are responding to various attacks. And so, uh, my role at the company is leading our engineering and, and a lot of our kind of, um, more advanced areas in offensive security, which is where my background comes in.
1: And let's, let's go there, because I was looking at uh, your LinkedIn profile, and I, I know those, LinkedIn does a decent job of sharing where you've been, and if, if you're proactive and proficient, you can kind of share what you've done and perhaps even some of the outcomes of, of the results of your effort. Um, but hearing it from you is probably going to be even more interesting, because, I mean, you've, you've started off, with, and let me go back to some of my notes, clearly a lot of software engineering. Um, but You had some logistics experience, uh, I'll call it supply chain operations, perhaps, uh, connections to big data uh, with Mandiant, some Threat Intel stuff, and then moving to MITRE, another organization that I love, uh, looking at adversary emulations, and a nice collection of environment, ecosystem, operations, workflow, building stuff, testing stuff, and uh I think that gives you an interesting perspective on where cybersecurity fits into Mm -hmm. a business, not just from the technical perspective. And you you had a a stint uh, with the government as well, which that doesn't say much. Maybe you can share a little bit about that. But talk to me a little bit about that history and some of the key learnings perhaps um, Mm -hmm. coming from the different roles that help you as a cybersecurity professional perhaps connect the risk and the solutions back to the business.
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think to me, the varied experience has has helped me shape how I view cybersecurity holistically. And it's looking back, I didn't kind of set out on my career. I've been doing this for 17 or 18 years. I didn't set out to get that varied experience. I just kind of stumbled into it through opportunities and and so forth. But looking back, I can see clearly that you know, I spent time in big data as a, as a manager at John Deere, where I learned a lot about tractors and agriculture, but, you know, spending a couple of years managing big data at that point, which was, you know, call it 2010 to 2012 time period, when data was starting to explode, actually started to to build quite a bit of how I view data and technology in general. That was a, a very influential role for me. Um, and at the time at John Deere was, was basing all of their systems on something called IBM uh, DB2 databases. Which nobody ever works with nowadays, but it's a relational, you know, data system, and trying to move to Hadoop, and so transitioning and kind of guiding that that transition was was really eye opening, and so I've had roles like that where I where I've been in managerial and data related, but then I've also you know I went from John Deere to a variety of security companies like Kenna Security, uh, where I spent about a year doing vulnerability analysis and combining a vulnerability scan data. That kind of exposed me to the world of CVEs and exactly how companies specifically try to um, prioritize them because you can't solve all your vulnerabilities, but which ones do you solve? So that was kind of eye-opening just to see that process. And then I moved on from there to to FireEye, uh, specifically Mandiant at the time. And the goal with, with Mandiant was Threat Intel. It was, hey, can we take all of the information that we're gathering internally through IR, incident response engagements, and red team assessments, toss it into a data system internal to the company called Nucleus, which I go into actually in, in the book, the technical specifications of it, which are, are actually uh, kind of wild when it, when it comes down to it. Um, but what we would do is we take all that data from Threat Intel, aggregate it, try to get context from it, and then ultimately try to spit that out into something that is actionable. And so I did that for a number of years, uh, overseeing a handful of projects, building things like the central repository at at FireEye, which is a collection of malware samples that ranges into the billions uh, that are collected on an an ongoing basis. And moved on from there and, and joined MITRE, where my big project, the reason I went to MITRE, was to build what's called the Caldera Framework, And so Caldera was still in a prototype version one state when I went to MITRE and they asked, Hey, can you build this into something bigger and better? And so when I went there and took over that project, the whole goal was, Hey, can you build a system that can mimic how a hacker would actually navigate through a system and make the same type of decisions with a small amount of data? It's a really difficult problem set. And it requires a lot of, uh, What's called automated planning, which is a very small sector of AI that doesn't get a lot of attention because it's it's not super sexy, but it's really interesting. And so I did that for a number of years. Caldera got so big and so popular in the purple team space that it actually is the the impetus for starting Prelude because it was, hey, we got this giant research project that's really you know uh, digging in a lot of organizations. Is there something to continuous testing? And that's kind of where the journey of of the specifics around continuous testing started.
1: Yeah and I've uh, I've had the the pleasure of speaking to a number of miter folks and my my experience with it is the research is great the tools are great the frameworks are great the standards are great the the community surrounding all that stuff is fantastic and then you have to actually deploy it and use it and and get it to work and and I found in like Fred Wilmont is a good good friend of mine and bringing solutions that wrap around all the good stuff that MITRE does and, and shims it or uh, connects the abstractions between MITRE and the business or security operations, if you wanna be more specific, yeah. is super crucial. And I, I wanna, it might be a slight tangent, but I'm interested in this point because it's something that's been in my mind. And mm-hmm. I think you have a, an interesting perspective perhaps on this. My view of some of the newer security technologies I'm not speaking specifically to the one you're working on, but mm-hmm. just in general, they're looking at growing and enhancing the m- new modern way of operating. So it's always chasing the containers and the multi-hybrid clouds and yeah. and then IoT and OT and and I I feel that a lot of the new stuff forgets about the old stuff. And you talked yeah. about ABM DB2 and. Uh, sadly, if, if I can say that, I have experience in that building a SIM for Symantec. That was the technology we started with, which it was a behemoth and didn't wasn't easily deployable and easily maintainable. We ended up moving to MySQL, which had its own issues. But my point is there's a lot of legacy stuff that companies have and a lot of new security technologies kind of aiming toward the the new, the new frontier, if you will. What's your experience? I don't know if you have any any specific experience along the way, but the the DB2 to Hadoop is maybe one example, but how do you see organizations overcoming the challenges of we're transforming, our security products are transforming and the programs that connect those things together need to transform as well. Any any thoughts on that and perhaps even advice for the audience on how to overcome some of those challenges?
2: Yeah, I think, I think yeah, I'll go on a tangent on this one. I call it the sh- chasing the shiny ball. Uh, we hit this a lot. You know, I, I see this. I've seen this a lot in my career in general, which is the new thing comes out. Everybody kind of moves in that direction and, and all the old stuff is forgotten. Yet the old stuff makes, as you said, the majority of your infrastructure, the majority of your endpoints and so forth. And so um, I think it's good to try to get that coverage across all the new things if you're using them. But from a technology standpoint, my advice is always use the tried and true basic, like the sm- the smallest, simplest version of everything that you need, do that and do it really, really well and only get pulled into the new stuff if you can create a really good justification for technology or business. So an example is moving from, you know, say spinning drive servers to containers, the you need security in either one of these cases, but as an organization, do you make the move from spinning drive servers to containers and how do you make that decision? And so I think those decisions in today's world happen too quickly and people just chase the shiny ball. And then all of a sudden you've kind of have this infrastructure that you didn't really plan out how you're going to manage and you don't really understand the pros and cons where if you go all the way back to the basics and you stick with just the boring technologies that have been around for, for many decades and really perfect that every decision you make after that becomes uh, very calculated and measured. And so I'm, I'm really big into that, that simplicity angle.
1: Yeah. There's no, no lack of complexity, uh, making things more difficult. Yeah. So let's, um, let's talk about the book. So the, you decided to write a book on continuous security yep. testing. Um, describe to me the catalyst behind it. You kind of touched on it a little bit already, but I mean, there's having the idea or having the knowledge, yep. having the idea that I have the knowledge that I sh- should document, yep. change, turning that into a book. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple hard steps there. Uh, yes. And, and then getting it published, of course, is a whole other thing. But so yep. talk to me a little bit about why... Well, the process of turning your knowledge into a book and, and why that was important for you to do. Yeah, it's, uh,
2: um, it happened really organically. So I never really sat down and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to write a book. And what am I going to write a book on? I'll write it on what I do for a living. That's uh, kind of not the way it happened. Um, that'd probably be even simpler. But the, the way I ended up coming to the, to the conclusion that I needed to write a book was based on just conversations I was having on repeat that was the same conversation, be it with a customer, a security person, you know, friends and family that I converse with and I, and I kept running into the same conversation and having the same aha moment, which is there's a new frontier happening in security today, and nobody really realizes it yet. And every conversation I get into, it becomes about a two minute, you know convincing period. and then people hit the light bulb moment and then they're like true believers in this thing. And there's no material, no documentation, nothing on on this sort of concept. And what it boils down to is an assumption that our defenses are working. It it has been really interesting over the last six or 12 months as I have conversations with people before writing the book around, hey, I believe my EDR is working or my AV is working. Um, And there's that kind of base knowledge that they have that is built on when they take a few steps back. It's built on nothing outside of marketing and, and promotional materials and so forth, like a lot of things are. And then when you step back and you say, okay, I bought an EDR, how do I know it's working? And when you start to look at how you're, you're approaching security from that angle, you start to say, oh, well, maybe maybe I need to, to test my hypothesis and see if it's actually correct. And so that's, that's where I ended up writing the book was enough of those conversations that I didn't want to keep repeating them. And so it was uh, actually on a, on a trip to Vancouver. I was visiting, I was on vacation slash visiting my co-founder, our CEO, uh, Spencer Thompson at, at Prelude. And we're out there in Vancouver. And I was like, you know what, Spencer, I'm, I think I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write a book. I keep having these conversations. Um, I don't think anybody's ever going to read the thing, but like, I got to write it down and like, I can at least send it to people. So when they ask me the questions, or I have the convo, I'll just send them the book. And I actually gave myself only 30 days to do the writing. And I sat down, I was like, I'm going to do it all in the month of June and I'm just going to write what's in my head and it's probably going to be like 50 pages. It'll be a a small book. And I did the 30 days, I used up all of it and it ended up being a 370 page book that goes into kind of a few different parts, but it's all on that topic of continuous security testing.
1: And the the, the title, which I'm... uh... I want to dissect a little bit with you. Yeah. It's called irreducibly irreducibly complex systems. Yes, an introduction to continuous security continuous yeah. security testing. If I can only. It is say. a mouthful. Yeah, that is that is complex. But the does one require the other? Can you? Maybe I'm jumping the gun here uh, on this because maybe mm-hmm. folks don't even know what continuous security testing is. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe as part of the answer to does one you have to reduce complexity in order to achieve a continuous view of your posture? Yeah, uh, no, it's a, it's a great and, question. And it is a mouthful. <laughs> and it is a mouthful. And so maybe as part of that, what what is continuous security testing so we can kind of frame?
2: Yeah, so I think that's a good place to start. So continuous security testing is the process of, of course, continuously testing your defenses against all of the emerging threats occurring in the world. And so what you're doing through continuous testing is you wanna know how your defenses respond to different attacks. Now, everything is done from the perspective of your endpoints and your end end devices. So your workstations, your laptops, your containers, your whatever that endpoint is, is what you're taking that perspective. So you're continuously testing that, you wanna know how it responds. So this differs in two ways from traditional security testing. The first big way is it is from the perspective of your endpoint defenses, not from the offensive operator. So things like red teaming and pen testing and so forth, uh, breach and simulation—you're doing it from an offensive operator perspective, which means you're trying to determine what you're what you're capable of doing. So, I'm the adversary. What can I do? And you can do a lot of things from the adversarial perspective, but the real thing that that matters is how does your defense respond? Am I Purchasing the right defenses, am I configuring them correctly and so forth? So everything in continuous security testing is done from that perspective. The second real big differentiator is from kind of just security testing in general, is scale. Continuous security testing is designed to run because it's focused on defense, it's designed to run at complete scale on production. So if you have a hundred thousand computers in your environment, in your infrastructure, you're designed to run this on all 100,000 every day on repeat. That's something that just doesn't happen in traditional red teaming, breach and simulation, and so forth. And uh, for those two reasons, it kind of introduces, to to achieve that, it introduces a new paradigm, which I dub as irreducibly complex systems in the book uh, through the title. And I go into this in the book in in quite detail, but I think, um, let me define this really quick. So if you're unfamiliar with the term, So an irreducibly complex system is a system that only works when all the individual components that make the system up are running and functioning correctly. They all have to be there. If you remove one of them, the entire system is not functional, and it actually doesn't even resemble itself. So a common example that gets used in that space is a mousetrap. And so a mousetrap requires, it only has three or four pieces, right? You've got a base, you've got a spring, and so forth you've got the the metal thing that goes down you remove one of those the mouse trap is completely rendered useless it actually doesn't even operate even close to the to the purpose so you need all of those three or four pieces for that to operate and so that's what irreducibly complex means it it kind of reduces down to the the least amount of complexity now continuous security testing i believe hasn't been done to all 100,000 machines in our infrastructure i think it hasn't been done to date because we haven't solved how to make a actual infrastructure, a system that is irreducibly complex, because I think that's required in order to conduct that level of testing. And the reason why I think that is, is because to build a system like that, it requires two almost completely different skill sets. It requires advanced offensive skills to create the types of attacks and tests that you need to write to to test the defenses. And then it requires software skills to be able to build a complementary system that is effectively a very safe, high assurance command and control center. And so you don't often have a lot of security people, like deep offensive security people, with the skill set to build software systems of that level. And vice versa, the people that are typically building software systems at that level have never written an offensive exploit in their life. And so there's a dichotomy of skill sets. That I think has to be overcome for continuous security testing to be viable.
1: I'm, I'm stuck on the the, the mouse trap because um, <laughs> I and I don't know. My, my view of this is operationalizing mm-hmm. purple teams with the, or a software enabled purple team. Yep. I don't know if that's the simple. Absolutely, simple, it's a great way to look, it. look at this. So, so I go back to the the mouse trap now mm-hmm. and. So there, there are the three or four parts, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that came to my mind was, well, the mouse trap is worthless if there's no mouse. Yeah. Right. Um, but then I took it to, well, how do we test the mousetrap? Well, we're not gonna go get a mouse. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people <laughs> do, I don't know. But typically it's a pen or a pencil yeah. or something that we stick it in there, right? And you, you need to have the the bait. Uh, if we, if we yeah, want to the connect cheese. it to, to, to uh, yeah, the cheese, exactly, to connect it to some deception or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so expanding on that analogy, because once once you set off the trap, right, mm-hmm. either through legitimate, well, yeah, do you have a separate trap that mm-hmm. looks the same? So that yeah. is, it a, is it a clone environment or is it a production environment? Is yep. another another common thing that... Uh, and testing is always running into right. Yep, you, you knock over a machine, and then your irreducibly complex system fails. Yeah, <laughs> so hundred percent. So, t- talk to me a little bit about that. Um, yeah. Maybe using the mousetrap as an analogy to, to help paint a picture for folks. Yeah,
2: absolutely. That's a, that's actually a great point because this one comes up a lot in continuous testing. This comes up in security testing in general a lot, which is hey, I need to do all of my testing against the development environment because I don't want to cause any issues in production. Or what I actually have seen a lot of my career, which I've always found astonishing, is security teams are given anywhere from one, like one computer to maybe 20 to do all of their testing on. And the goal there is, or the, the kind of directive is, do your testing on that one machine or 20 machines and then extrapolate the findings to all 100,000 and that's how we'll do our security testing out of a fear of causing a disruption in a production environment. Of course, the more extrapolation you do, the more guessing and assumptions you're taking along the way. So as we like look at that from a, a mouse trap perspective, and we would say hey, we can we can achieve this, we're going to clone the mouse trap and have two mouse traps and we're not going to touch the production mouse trap. We're going to do all of our testing on the um, on the test mousetrap. The problem with that approach is you're assuming out of the gate that these are perfectly identical mousetraps. And potentially when you first set your experiment up, even in a one-to-one, call a mousetrap a computer, you might actually get that on day one. On day two, things start to change. One of the mousetraps is going to get updated because maybe somebody comes along and they clean the base of it, right? That adds some new friction on the table that may actually change how it behaves, the more times it's tested, the spring is going to get worn down. That's now gonna impact the behavior. The, the amount of time it takes to close may actually get slower because it's gone so many times that it's actually the spring is now a little bit slower where the the sharp one, which doesn't get tested as often is very quick. And so you start to, to lose that um, connection of how identical these things are. Even in something as like clonable as, as a mousetrap, when you take a computer, and you even do the one-to-one, two completely identical containers, and you leave them running for 24, 48 hours, the amount of delta between those two different uh, environments is significant. Different processes start to run, different users engage, um, different uh, uh, interactions happen as as incoming packets come in that actually make the environments quite different.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm just thinking of uh, seasonal businesses where a system – during back to school might look similar to uh, a holiday yep. buying yep. season, but completely different from the yep. rest of the year, for example, or I don't know, throw throw another holiday where people yep. buy a bunch of stuff in there. But so even, even just the time of year or the the yep. way people interact with the systems uh, can change. Yeah. Time
2: well. of day, believe yeah. it or not. I haven't, I don't have an answer for a lot of these, but you find it in testing. So one of the most interesting that I found is actually, um, what I can best, uh, tie to like a, a moon cycle. Cause I have no idea, which is, uh, different EDRs and AVs will actually respond very differently based on the time of day. Now, if you're testing continuously, you're going to run and you're going to actually highlight a lot of this and you're going to see it. You may not know, have a reason and, and knowledge about why it's occurring, but at least, you know, that you have an open risk there, which is, Hey, if it's between 10 and 11 PM or, um, a say an update a windows update just ran on the computer then the edr becomes non-responsive for the next you know 30 minutes or maybe even full day and if you're not continuously testing you're actually not going to have any visibility on that whatsoever and it's really interesting to start to get those statistics
1: once once you are testing so let me ask what what seems obvious to me now having heard what i've heard Mm -hmm. are the the bad actors um using, <laughs> using this method to understand where existing technologies fall apart or, or slow down or leave things exposed, yeah. so that they can pounce on those moments of opportunity.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think the bad actors have been using these technologies for, for quite some time in a smaller scale and what you use from the or what you get from the defensive side by starting to use these yourself is you actually start to get visibility on what's actually been happening on the adversarial perspective so i'll give an example so uh in in my career i've done a significant amount of offensive operations so be it red teaming or something called oco offensive cyber ops and so i've done a, a quite a bit of that and through that time period, I have pulled out a number of techniques over, over my career that have been very successful. A couple of them are actually still successful today that I've been using for, for 17 years. I'll talk about two of them right now because um, I hope they get closed down one day and maybe more visibility will help. Uh, one of them is driving up the CPU uh, utilization on a, on a computer. One of the first things I do when I post-compromise and exploit a machine is I actually drive the CPU up roughly 50, 60% once I get it up to about that percentage, the EDR, AV or any other defenses on the machine are forced into deciding whether they should act on things or take their pedal off the metal because they don't wanna add to the fact that there's so much going on on the CPU. So they start dropping packets intentionally. That gives me the chance to start to use that machine completely undetected, unprevented just by raising CPU. So that's a technique that's actually been happening under the covers for, for quite a few years. And so when you're running continuous testing, you start to shed a light on that because if you're testing 100,000 machines, you're naturally going to get CPU running high on, on quite a few of them. And you're going to start to see which ones so your EDRs are actually dropping packets in that scenario, which ones are doing really well. And you can start to, to draw correlations. The second example I'll give real quick is uh, chaining techniques. So what I mean by this is A lot of existing security testing is done in in what we call malware, which is I drop a binary on a machine, I run it, it runs as a program, a connected program that does a bunch of different behaviors. Defenses are tuned to catch that. What they're not tuned to catch are micro behaviors that you run a single technique, a benign action on a computer where you take the output of that benign action and you chain it to the input of another benign action. I call the process chaining. And where if every individual action is benign and runs in a separate process, it's actually quite difficult for a defense to catch. An example of that would be I want to um, ransomware an entire computer. I could do it in a ransomware binary like a lock bit or some of the things that we see out, out in the world today. I'm going to get caught most of the time if there's a defense there. So what I choose to do instead is I will... Uh, locate the files I want to ransomware is step one in one process, completely benign. People search file systems all the time. Can't really shut that down. And then I will feed that list of files into a completely detached separate process that will then copy those files into a location that I can kind of work together and do one, one thing. It's called staging the files. And then I will pipe that location into another separate process that will encrypt them. And then I will pipe the results of that into another process that will compress them into a zip and into another process that will exfiltrate them. Now, each one of those steps of that, those five uh, elements in the chain, the links are completely benign at the uh, root level. So things won't catch it unless they see the connective tissue. And if you run in separate processes, it's hard to get that connective tissue. And therefore that's a technique that, that is commonly used that you start to flesh out when you're continuously testing.
1: Interesting. Just when I thought it couldn't get more. <laughs> I, I feel like i talked talk to you for hours about uh, some of these scenarios and, and whatnot. Um, perhaps we will have another other chat for that. Uh, I want to go back to the book and in the, in the few mm-hmm. minutes we have left uh, for our chat today, and maybe a, a, an overview of what's in it. I don't know if uh, mm-hmm. an overview of the uh, the chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, who do you think should read it, and what do you hope they should get out of it when they do? Yeah, absolutely.
2: So I structured the book into actually three sections four if you count the conclusion, which I, I actually will, cause there's some interesting things there. Um, the first section of the book is, uh, it's a number of different chapters, four or five chapters in that first section, where I actually go through a lot of my own personal journey. And so what you'll read in those first, that first section in those chapters will be a lot of un- behind the scenes, uh, experiences I've had in the government at places like Canada security at places like Mandiant, uh, I go into my experience at MITRE. So at MITRE, I was on the attack evaluations. Uh, sorry, I was on the attack leadership team. I worked alongside evaluations. I built Caldera doing all that work. There was a lot of interesting behind the scenes decisions. I go into that in the book. Um, and the reason I go into a lot of the detail, I go into a lot of detail in, in a lot of cases, is to highlight the connective tissue behind a lot of those experiences and, and how I've kind of reached the conclusion around continuous security testing being that new frontier. And so that's what section one is all about. Section two of the book is really where a lot of meat happens. That is where I lay out the groundwork. I actually have structured it kind of like a a thesis. If you've ever looked at a a PhD program, it's laid out in a a similar way where I give an argument for continuous security testing. The pros, the cons, the, the, uh, the reasons against it. I go into all of that. And then I go into what kinds of attacks need to be part of continuous security testing. How do you determine what tests to write and where do they come from? I go into things like surface area. What, where are you testing? What are you testing? How do you decide that? And so forth. And then I go into section three, which is an architecture tour. So this is where the irreducibly complex systems get broken down into 7 subcomponents that I would consider in architecture appropriate for continuous testing. So that would involve things like, hey, you need agents or probes that can run the tests. You need tests themselves. You need a planning engine that is capable of making decisions of what test to send to which endpoint at what time. And so you need all of these different components that can be looked at and isolated individually. And I go into each one of those and I describe the component. And then I actually give a lesson learned that I went through building components like that in the past to try to make it a little bit more, more uh interesting. And then the conclusion section is one of my favorites. So the conclusion section, I'm actually crowdsourcing with a number of of folks in the security community that have really interesting stories to tell. And uh, I've already got uh, two conclusions written for the book, which sounds crazy, but it's probably going to end up being six or seven in in total. And it's cool. So if you have a copy of the digital book, you get these updates uh, automatically, which is as conclusions come in, The digital book gets updated and the conclusions get sent to anybody that has a copy. And what these conclusions contain are the perspectives of interesting people in security and how they see the future of security testing in particular going, the importance, the future and so forth. So a few few really interesting names, people that are working in places like SOX and people doing threat intel and security engineering and CISOs, trying to get different perspectives to kind of round out um, where people think the industry is going.
1: I love it. So that's probably the the audience as well. Though, those four uh, four roles. Exactly. Um, I'm curious. Uh, I always like to do one more question. When Marco mm-hmm. joins me, my co-founder, he says, ah, "Sean's got one more question." <laughs> the um the thing that's sticking in my mind. So people listening. I mean, I've I've done testing of security products uh, at Symantec for for years, and setting up a testing program mm-hmm. is pretty significant and i would imagine it's not no small feat for an organization to set up security testing programs themselves so for folks thinking about this um actually i'll have two questions Mm -hmm. what what what's maybe one of the first things they can do to look at their current program to say i'm doing it right or i haven't started here's how i can start yeah no that's the first right question it's Number one thing is have
2: a defensive security product of some type uh, covered. Like that's number one. It sounds like something you wouldn't have to say, but it's actually shocking how many environments you go into have no defensive protection, meaning no antivirus capabilities, no EDR running uh, and so forth. So the first thing is like, make sure you have some type of defensive product in place that can do endpoint protection. The second thing that you want is something that can validate it's working. And to me, this has been one of the most astonishing things that hasn't happened uh, as a norm yet is people are used to buying the defensive product and then they have no idea if it actually works. And so the second thing is get something that can validate that is actually working. People can do that in various ways. You can do it manually through like a red team or a purple team, or you can do it in a repeatable way, like a bass vendor, or you can do it in a continuous security testing way, which is kind of the most automated you can you can go. And so that's that would be my advice for starting off.
1: Love it. And another question I either ask or comment on as part of the show, and I'm going to do it here as well, because clearly what analyzing your current security posture in a continuous manner will give you an opportunity to create, I'll say, a better mousetrap for your security program, right? You can fine tune your protections and your response and all that stuff. Where I like to take it next is... And I'm going to pull on the irreducibly complex system point here where teams are constantly doing something because of the way a business process was built. And I'm wondering, do you see or have you seen any impact on how business systems are built so that they're not, I'll go back to your CVE thing. So they're not throwing a bunch of vulns uh, out that the teams have to then patch, yeah. and they're wasting time patching instead of responding or building better protections. Absolutely, I'll I'll give you a good one because it's actually
2: impacted us uh, internally at, at Prelude, which is I think pretty interesting. So um, one of the things that uh, I've kind of seen through continuous security testing and just the experience of doing it in in so many different realms has been, um, the insecurity of computers as we know them. So like actual laptops, actual servers, things that we have taken for granted is the devices we work on, right? Businesses run on laptops and, and desktops and that type of thing. Um, what I've kind of recursed down to is these devices actually, um, try to balance two things. They try to balance security with privacy. And they're at what I call in the book, the, uh, equilibrium of those two elements, security and privacy. And because they try to be in the middle of those two, they can't do either really well and they can't perfect either one of those well, because the operating system, for example, is far too um, forgiving for the user. The user can do anything, which makes them hard to secure. Right. And so because of that, you can actually only reduce or improve the security to a certain extent. You cannot bulletproof an actual laptop or a server because there's too much surface area. Now, because I've gone through all that recursion and learning, one of the things we've actually done to impact it at at Prelude itself is we're actually in the process of getting rid of all of our company laptops, desktops, all of our computers, uh, which sounds crazy, but we're switching the entire staff over to tablets, Chromebooks, and other things that are secure by design devices that are actually running operating systems that were built and designed with security first. So instead of an operating system that was designed in the 1950s, Consider an an iPad that had an OS developed in 2010. Has a completely different architecture that has sandboxing and protections in place that make it kind of a a dummy proof scenario from a security perspective. And so it's impacted our business to the point of like shifting everybody over, including software engineers, designers, front end engineers, um, legal, marketing. It it, kind of goes the whole gamut.
1: I love it. It's, uh, it's interesting, some, some folks may know I worked for good technology for a, a short stint and uh, the whole goal there was to move everything to the mobile environment, right? Yeah. And in a secure fashion, of course, BlackBerry ended up buying them. Um, yeah, I think the, what, what I found challenging a few years back was just the interoper- interoperability of apps and transferability yeah. of data in those closed systems. Yep. and I'm sure things have, have moved a long way since then to yep. enable streamline business processes, yep. but still do it in a secure way in a, in a container that's, exactly. that's uh, built by design to be secure. So, but without continuous cool.
2: testing, we never would have we never would have <laughs> come to that conclusion. We <laughs> had to kind of go through all the testing, and then we kind of hit that like light bulb moment of wow, the OS actually isn't as as secure as we thought it was. I love that
1: example because you, you probably don't have a. Uh, Whole team dedicated to patching. <laughs> no,
2: nope. no patching at all. <laughs> everybody has auto updates That's put amazing. on their iPads and Chrome.
1: That's a fantastic example. Well, David, uh, it, it's a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to chat with you. I'm uh, I'm thrilled to have learned about your experiences and uh, your view on continuous security testing. And um, yeah, hope everybody grabs a copy of the book. Uh, I want people to read it. I think there, there's going to be some good things in there for teams trying to figure out, are they making the right investments, doing the right things for their program to protect the business? The book's called Irreducibly Complex Systems, an Introduction to Continuous Security Testing. I got it all out in one one, uh, straight sentence there. Um, We'll include a link to that, a link to David's profile, and any other resources that uh, David thinks are useful to help uh, folks learn from from this conversation beyond what we talked about today. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and thanks, David, for joining. We hope to uh, to have you on again soon. Thank you very much.
0: Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at Pantera.io. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at Imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security podcast.